BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or The Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. My name is Tom Butler and I'm joined as usual by Brendan Duffy. Hello. Tom Wheatley. Hello. Gentlemen. Great to have you here, and great for you listening at home. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. Um, <laughs> um, this episode is dedicated entirely to the 1967 film Casino Royale. Um, so, if you're looking for the good Casino Royale, wait for the next episode because um, <laughs> please turn off now. <laughs> <laughs> Just this one is the 1967 version, which stars David Niven, Peter Sellers, Woody Allen, amongst many other people. I think it's a fascinating film um, and, you know, I did wonder whether or not we would cover this film in the podcast just because it's obviously n- not canon, but I think it warrants, the story behind it warrants covering in detail because, you know, it's just a fascinating story or personally, I think so anyway. What do you think? I think it's really interesting. I've actually probably enjoyed researching this more than quite a lot of the other podcasts purely because it's so weird and so much going on and every and i've read a few uh, accounts of it where people have said you could do whole books about this just how it was made because it is so complicated and ridiculous but i think it's important if you're into bond it's important because it's basically a, a, a kind of view of what bond could have been so to yeah. to find out about the story and how it got made that could have been bond it, it's just it didn't happen that way and we got the bond we got now 
and if you haven't watched this film, I mean, it's it's relatively readily available. Um, I'd say if you're a, a sort of a, a casual Bond fan, then maybe watch it after you've watched all the other ones. It, it is definitely worth looking at for that reason. And I think we'll come to it what we think of the film, but it, it's it, it's well, just. I'd, I'd say watch it not as a Bond film. If you watch it as a Bond film, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. If you watch it as a different a different sort of film, you might like it because it's not a Bond film. It's it's a different film. Some people love it. It's it's just a it's, a it's a tricky one, and I think most obviously bon, most Bond fans are not fans of it because it's so different than what they used to. That is true. Well, shall we start as we always do at the beginning? Yes, that's probably a good idea. Let's. <laughs> so, Casino Royale is a film that was released in 1967, same year as You Only Live Twice, and its origins obviously lie in the Ian Fleming book. So, Ian Fleming wrote a Casino Royale. Uh, as his first James Bond book, and it was published in 1953. It was published by Jonathan Cape, and then published next year, the following year in America, um, in 1954. And actually, when it was published there, it was published under different names. But we'll cover some more of that probably when we get to, to Ian Fleming episode. Just sort of a brief summary of the of the story. It sees James Bond sent to France to play Baccarat against Le Chiffre, who is the paymaster for, for a smirch-controlled trade union. And the idea is that Bond will bankrupt him and that will obviously pay a huge, big damage to, to Smirsch. Uh, he's helped by Vesper Lind, who is another spy from his same agency. He's also helped by CIA's Felix Leiter. Bond cleans Le Chiffre out, um, wins 80 million francs of... Uh, Smirsh's money but you know this story the story of the book is not important for this film that we're talking about because (laughs) other other than there being a high stakes game of cards and then Bond being captured by Le Chiffre and then tortured that's the only connection that the book has to the film so you don't need to have read the book to understand the film because you won't understand the film anyway because it doesn't make any sense (laughs) Yeah, there's a few character names, but if you watch if you watch this film, it's gonna be it's gonna confuse you who the characters are because they're they're not the same characters. And interestingly, I saw reprints of the Casino Royale book with this cover on the front with the oh, really? uh, the 1967 poster. You just think you would have not been expecting a very different book <laughs> if you'd yeah. seen this film and then read the read the book. But so before we get to our version, the 1967 version, there is another version of um, Casino Royale, which we won't cover on this because it's not a film. But yeah, uh, it's just a, a, a TV uh, one hour part of um, an anthology series called Climax in 1954. So pretty like the same year that the book was actually released in America. American TV has made a, a version, but it's the main character is called Jimmy Bond. He's not called James Bond, and he's um, his nickname is Card Sharp, Card Sharp Jimmy Bond. So it's slightly removed from the Bond that we know, and also the Bond that we're going to be discussing. Barry Nelson played played him, uh, and he played him as an American secret agent. So you know, it's also different to what we're what we've been used to. Peter Law played Le Chief, so they still maintained that essence of the story. Um, and it's the first screen adaptation of James Bond, so that's that goes down on record for that. So you, if you want to see it, it is on YouTube, and also it was uh, released as a bonus feature on the film that we're talking about today. Just if you are very curious to see it, slightly a few changes that were made. Um, he's he's not working for 
British intelligence. He's not got the code name 007. So yeah, that I mean that's it really. It was just an hour of him playing cards. And um, there was. Have there you was... watched this one, Butler? I no, I have not. I do mean to 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 keep, uh, do keep me into watching it. Peter yeah, Laurie, though, I quite like the the sound of that as the sheaf. Yeah, the, the struggle I had is the quality. Uh, I could, the one I found on YouTube, the quality is very difficult to deal with. It's very grainy. Maybe we'll do it either as a, a future date. But there was a possibility for them to do more of this as this part of part of this series um and they asked Ian Fleming to pitch more stories uh, in 1958 and what he did pitch actually became part of the collection in Fleurs only and in Trigger Mortis which was written by Anthony Horowitz uh, quite recently so that's yeah there there we go that's it James Bond is on screen he's made his debut well in 1955 things change a little bit more when the film rights were sold uh, by Ian Fleming to a gentleman called Gregory Ratoff. Now, I don't know where I read this, but I think around that time, Ian Fleming was quite keen to sell the rights to these books. He was really, really focused on getting these, getting made into films, basically. He always had this idea of having them made into films. So at the time, he sold them to, to Gregory Ratoff, and um, he was a Russian-born American film director, actor and producer, um, he's quite famous for a role he had in... Uh, he played Max uh, Fabian in All About Eve, which you may have seen. And, yeah, he he bought the rights for $6,000, which is about £60,000 now. So pretty pretty weighty sum to get the to rights to the book. So Ratoff, he never really made it in the, the world of acting that, that highly. So um, he dropped that and went to become a directing oh direct, did a directing co- contract for Columbia in 1941 and he was working on he'd worked on various films but there was one film that kind of started it all off for him working on this casino royale film and it was a film called Abdullah's Harem um, which it was set in a, a number of places but part, part of it was set in Egypt essentially it was a front for diamond smuggling and um, there was this massive issue on the film about kind of these investors diamond smuggling and using the, the film as a way to, to do it. And it basically just pushed him over the edge. And he he just kind of, he said to um, uh, Lorenzo Semple Jr., who I'll talk about in a minute, that when he came back from doing this contract, he was just going to buy the rights to the first book he saw that was doing, that was, you know, a bestseller in the, in the book lists. And he was going to make it. He just he didn't want to deal with these kind of weird di- movie deals um, anymore. So that's how we got involved with the rights of Cinerale and how he started making it. So he commissioned a man called Lorenzo Semple Jr., who you may know of. He's a pretty famous uh, American playwright and screenwriter. He was one of the writers on the 1960s Batman TV series. And probably more relevant for us is he also wrote Never Say Never Again significantly later on mm. from um, his uh, this initial uh, attempt at Casino Royale. But according to Semple, and there's some quite interesting articles that he's, that he's talked about this and his relationship with Ratoff, neither of them were really fans of the way that the book was written. They, they thought that Bond should actually be female. Uh, and in a quote from Semple, he says, frankly, we thought he was kind of unbelievable. And as I recall, even kind of stupid. So Gregory thought the solution was to make Bond a woman. Jane Bond, if you will. And he even had a plan to cast Susan Howard in the role. 
So you can see there's very interesting and and uh, probably we'll go into something like, uh, around this in more depth in the future if um, if we ever have time. But yeah, there's a lot of elements to this kind of original script. That script that um, Semple wrote, that's been lost now. Nobody has, has seen that script. So yeah, in 1956, Ratoff set up a production company with uh, Michael Garrison uh, to produce the Casino Royale and it never got made. Well, I mean, I guess he he didn't know that he was sitting on a gold mine at that point, right? Because the Bond films hadn't started. It was a couple of years before the Bond films had started. and So, yeah, in 1960, Gregory Ratoff died uh, of cancer in Switzerland. So uh, this is December 1960. Now, the there's a bit of confusion here over how the rights went from Ratoff onto Charles Feldman, who was the producer who went on to make the 1967 film. Because basically... The st- the story is, and the and the reports everywhere say Feldman acquired the rights from Fe- from Ratoff's widow, but actually, when you look into it, Ratoff had been married to a lady called Eugenie Leontovich from nineteen twenty three, but actually they were divorced in nineteen forty nine. So whether she was the widow who acquired the um, who had the access to the rights, it's not clear. It's possible that Ratoff got married again and had a second wife that's not been reported about, uh, but that's that's TBC. Because, but basically, yeah, on his tombstone, Ratoff's tombstone, it said "beloved husband," so that leads me to suggest there's a second wife in the picture that just isn't reported in the history books. But anyway, so at this point, Cubby Broccoli is looking for the the James Bond rights. He contacts uh, Ratoff's widow, um, and in the hope of striking a deal with her, but she's being represented by Charles K. Feldman, who was and he was looking after Ratoff's estate. Now, Cubby knew Charles K. Feldman because they used to work together at Famous Artists. Cubby was a um, a talent agent there. Cubby um, was. This is a quote from Cubby. He said, "Charlie told her you shouldn't sell it. He was quite intelligent and a rather crafty sort of chap, and he decided that he was going to get the property and purchase it." So I don't know whether or not it was because of Cubby's interest that Charles Feldman went after the rights or whether they those two things aren't aren't connected. But yeah, he could see that there was definitely a, a, a property there that was worth acquiring for himself. So like I said, Charles K, Charles K. Feldman, was a, he was a Hollywood attorney, film producer and talent agent who had founded the famous artist's talent agency where Cubby had worked as, a, as, a, as an agent. He... Yeah, basically, he founded the famous artist agency in 1932, and he was actually a bit of a wheeler dealer, Charles Feldman. Sounds like quite a character. And he actually invented the concept of packaging in Hollywood, which is where you get a director, a script and uh, and your stars all together. And then you take it to a studio and that he was the guy that came up with that idea. So he's quite an innovative producer. He then decided that he wanted to produce his own movies instead of instead of just selling the screenplays. And so he set up his own production company in 1945 and he actually produced uh, Macbeth with Orson Welles, Streetcar Named Desire, Seven Year Itch and a film called What's New Pussycat, which is um, Peter Sellers. Is that Peter Sellers or Woody Allen? I can't remember. Both of them. Both of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually... Um, According to um, Robert Wagner, um, who we know later married uh, Jill St. John, he thought that Feldman's career was actually an influence on Cubby because, you know, he'd started out as a talent agent. He'd then gone on to produce and direct. And, you know, Mm. working for Feldman, um, it sort of inspired him. So it's quite interesting, the two stories intersecting. But anyway, at this point, Feldman has the rights to Casino Royale. And, you know, we're a couple of years off from the, uh, the Bond films from starting. Yeah. 
so he's got the rights and straight away he wants to try and get this project off the ground and, and get something made. So he he turns to Howard Hawks, who at the time is a massive deal uh, in Hollywood. They'd worked together on a film called Western Red River, starring John Wayne in 1948. Anyone seen it? No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> so Howard Hawks wanted to make the film with Cary Grant, who he had worked with quite a lot on, on many projects before, playing 007. He also wanted Lee Brackett to write the script. And so Lee Brackett actually went on to write the first draft of Empire Strikes Back. And then she died. Um, yep. Yeah. I, Very yeah, soon I after that. that, yeah. Yeah. But but was a key to some of the important scenes. Apparently so. But this project was not to go any further because Howard Hawks actually saw Doctor No and he decided that it, it wasn't for him, this project wasn't going to go anywhere. I assume impressed by the project, right? Because why, you know, if you thought you could compete with it you'd make something so he backed out and um feldman went back to the drawing board and tried again well this part of the story is quite complicated because it's all about the legal proceedings and the discussions that go on with uh, cubby and and saltzman and eon and columbia so bear with me as i go through this so by 1964 Feldman had spent a lot of money on pulling together this Casino Royale film. And it up to like $550,000, I've seen noted. So he was spending a lot of money on this, on this film. So he decided that in order to make it, he's, he's going to have to get this, make a deal with, with Eon and United Artists because he can't do it on his own because it's just costing so much money. Hmm. So he kind of starts proceedings with... Broccoli and Saltzman, and they have. There's lots of debates that go on about how much money they should all get, profit divisions, when it would start production. United Artists apparently offered five hundred thousand pounds to produce it together, along with a percentage of the profits. But it wasn't enough for Feldman. So, as you said, Feldman was a bit of a weeder dealer. He wasn't. He wasn't like Kevin McClory. He wasn't completely new to the industry. He didn't just have something that he. He, you know wanted to make he, he he was wanted to make money he was a businessman and he knew he had he, if he did this right he could make a lot of money out of it so there's loads of news stories about this 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 whole series there are casting rumors around the film because bear in mind it hadn't they hadn't nobody had seen it yet so they were still talking about who was being cast and everything and as you know it, the casting takes a long time to do um and, and including one article where feldman stated that he wanted roger moore to play the part of of james bond in it and at the same time and Feldman didn't actually know this or probably didn't know it is that United Artists were actually having discussions with Kevin McClory about Thunderball so there's lots of money being thrown around at the moment lots of discussions happening and in an article in Variety Feldman talks a bit about Broccoli and Saltzman apparently he said that they told United Artists if they did the deal with Feldman they'd take the Bond franchise away they said to United Artists if they didn't take the deal nobody else would touch it so that was kind of like the end of it then. That's that then nothing happened for a little bit. Yeah, all the time um Feldman was developing the Casino Royale as well. He 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 employed a bunch of different writers, lots of really famous people working on this um on this film and at this stage it was very much a traditional adaptation of of Casino Royale. 
Now, I've got to give credit here to a journalist called Jeremy Duns. He's done so much work into um, discovering what this version of Casino Royale at this point would have been. Um, his website is uh, is a huge resource for this, and he wrote a really couple of really interesting articles for it for the Times and the Telegraph, both of them behind paywalls. But now you can actually read them on his website as well. But yeah, so he he uh, Feldman enlisted a guy called Ben Hecht, and um, he was at the time known as the Shakespeare of Hollywood. I mean, he was like you know novelist, poet, playwright. He also written some amazing scripts. So just some of the films he worked on: The Front Page. Underworld, which he won uh, the Best Screenplay Oscar in 1927. He also wrote the original Scarface. He also wrote Hitchcock's Spellbound and Notorious. I think probably Hitchcock's best film is Spellbound. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Mm. There's definitely an argument for that. And Hecht also worked uh, uncredited on loads of other screenplays, including Gone with the Wind, Foreign Correspondence, and actually a few more uh, Hitchcock films. So he really knew knew his stuff, this Mm. guy. And it's really a shame that... You know, this version never made it out. Yeah, and so a logical, he, a logical person to work on a, a script for the Casino Royale book. He, he sounds like that. He'd be perfect for it, doesn't he? Yeah, an open goal, isn't it? So he completed several drafts of Casino Royale, and a lot of that material survives uh, in his papers, which Jeremy Duns has gone through. And you know, I, I, we'll touch upon this again. I'm only going to touch upon this briefly here because I think we might try and get Jeremy on the podcast to talk about it himself because I think he'd be a great person to speak to. Yeah. But yeah, so the, an early draft of the screenplay uh, from 1957. Um, so it's a few years before Cubby comes on the scene. James Bond isn't in it, but he's been replaced by an American gangster called Lucky Fortunato. So um, that's an interesting uh, mm. diversion there. That didn't mm. that didn't last. A few more drafts were made. Uh, Jeremy Dunn said that the drafts are a masterclass in thriller writing. So he changed the plot slightly. He made Vice central to the plot. So Le Chiffre is acting, uh, actively controlling a network of brothels. The, these drafts, it's, it's now James Bond. Um, he's playing Baccarat against Colonel Chiffre. So he's changed the, the, the character a little bit. Felix Light is in there. Rene Mathis is in there. Vesper Lind is in there. Mm. Um, and there's also another character in, in, in these drafts called Lily Wang, who's a drug-addicted madam who once had a fling with Bond. So he's introduced his character who has a history with Bond, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And actually she gets killed by Le Chiffre's men and fed into the crusher of a rubbish truck. So echoes in there later on of Goldfinger. Yeah. Yeah, I I read quite a bit about this in in how the the Casino Real book, everyone said that it doesn't lend itself to a script. There's not enough in in that book to make a film out of it. So that's why he came up with all these ideas because he had to build out new characters, new places, because it doesn't really go anywhere. So he came up with all these new concepts of places to go. Yeah, new locations as well, because obviously it's all yeah. set in one place, pretty much, um, apart from the end scene. There, so there is a draft of the um, of the, uh, of Ben Hecht's uh, script, which says, which has uh, a weird conceit, and this suggests that they were imagining not make, making the film without Sean Connery, or making it without the Bond that we know. So what they did is they had... It, it, the character was not James Bond and he he's actually an American agent who gets called in to see M and he's given the name of James Bond and M tells him that since Bond's death, MI6 has put several agents into operation using his name because it not only perpetuates his memory, but it confuses the opposition. Yeah. And so when you look ahead to the 96-7 film, this is basically all that survives of Ben Heck's script in, that, in, in, in the finished film. This idea that other people can be Bond and in fact, yeah. in the, the 67 Casino Royale, 
loads of people are bond very um, very loosely survives yeah yeah <laughs> so um yeah um just according to Dunn's, you know, the, the, the pages in this um, in Hex papers are gripping uh, and the material from April 1964 is phenomenal. So in, ni- on, in April 1964, Ben Hecht sent a letter to Charles Feldman, um, you know, telling him that he was about to deliver his final script with his final notes. But uh, three days later, he died uh, of a heart attack in his home. So that was the end of that, really. Um, Hecht died. Uh, the script then got rewritten by Billy Wilder which is incredible to think about. One yeah. of the most iconic American filmmakers of all time. Also, Joseph Heller, catch, writer of Catch-22. And again, yeah. Dunn's wrote about Heller's script for, for for James Bond. That's a really interesting article as well. Other writers include Wolf Mankiewicz, John Law, Terry Southern. Um, and a lot of the film actually is improvised on the spot as well. The three credited screenwriters are Wolf Mankiewicz, John Law and Michael Sayers. But... Uh, yeah, jo- the the Joseph Heller stuff is also incredible. Um, I bet, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's obviously very faithful to um, the original novel, and like I said, hopefully we'll speak to Jeremy about this in more detail. So Ben Heck's script is rather important in getting this, getting the wheels in motion because Feldman offered the project to Columbia Pictures with that script and the studio accepted that due to the success of, you know, Bond had had, it, it was a, a, you know, appetizing offer. And because of this as well, the knock-on effect of the success of the sort of straight-laced Bond, so to speak, Feldman opted to make his film a spoof of the Bond series instead of a... Uh, direct from the book adaptation interesting that columbia pictures were going through some sort of financial problem at this point as well so putting sort of eggs in baskets for this one uh, in the hope that it it become big become a success well it's a fairly safe deal after you've seen the first bond films you and you had access to this and you've seen ben heck's script so you're like this is great well I've read quite a lot of stuff that talks about how if Feldman had have uh, had gone for it, he it, it, he may not it may have been a safe bet. But he would have made money just doing a normal Bond film if, if mm. he'd done it like the other ones. It would have been fine, but he gambled. He wanted to. He thought I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to parody it, and yep. um, and yeah, obviously it was a gamble that actually did pay off, kind of, but um, not long term. So. While all of this discussion was going on, United Artists realised that this was going to happen. They 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 didn't want Columbia to make this Bond film, so they opened negotiations again with Feldman for a partnership between Columbia and United Artists with a deal to make Casino Royale the sixth Bond film to be released after On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But this this didn't work for Feldman um, because it was too far in the future. And one of the reasons that one of the things that was under discussion was Connery. And Connery's contract was coming to an end at the end of 1966 for his Bond series. So Feldman said, look, if I want Connery, I can just wait for that you to finish making these films and I'll go to him myself and, and ask him if he if he wants to do it. So that it's just too long, long term. I want to make this quicker than that. Interestingly, he does actually end up speaking to Sean Connery to play Bond, um, but uh, to play Bond in Casino Royale. Feldman rejected the offer because Connery was asking for a million dollars to do it. 
And according to Broccoli, as part of this contract, Feldman wanted 75% of the receipts with only 25% going to Broccoli, Saltzman and United Artists. Pretty bold yeah. bargaining chip for, to play against um, Broccoli and Saltzman, who, as we know, are pretty savvy businessmen anyway. So you might be able to pull that off with somebody like McClory, but it ain't going to happen with them. So he didn't, he didn't get the deal. They didn't go for it. It was ridiculous. But bear in mind, he had been successful with what's new Pussycat. So he knew that that worked. He knew that style worked. And I don't know how much you two know about the the kind of what's new Pussycat films in the 60s. They're all like that. They're all like Casino Royale. There's, it's a very similar theme. It, a lot of people now, if you watch Casino Royale, you'll look at it and you go, this is ridiculous. This is nothing like a Bond film. It's not like a Bond film, but it's a pretty standard fare for the 60s. Most film, There were a lot of films that came out of that. What's New Pussycat is ridiculously meant. It's all over the place. Very similar to Casino Royale. It's almost like identical in style. So Feldman decided, right, I'm going to make it on my own. And I'm, I've decided that the best way to do this is not to try and make Bond another Bond film. I'm going to compete with it with the lampoon of the Bond films. And that's... That's where Casino Realcop came from. He he decided to, to to do one thing that he knew best at doing, which was a successful What's New Pussycat film, and then also to just make it completely different because he wanted to, you know, make it a success and not just make it a bit a money maker that just creamed a bit off of the the James Bond pie. Yeah, I love that quote from Woody Allen, which is Char- Charlie Feldman is lavish in the Egyptian tradition of lavish. What he is really trying to do is eliminate the Bond pictures forever. <laughs> I mean, it, when you think yeah. about it, it's kind of like, you know, with Marvel, the rights to the different characters lying with different studios yeah. and like, you know, Incredible Hulk is owned by Universal. But you imagine at Universal making a comedy Hulk film just to try and like <laughs> knock the Marvel movies off their track. It's just crazy. But, yeah, yeah, but if you look at the history of, of movies, it's pretty common that like a characters made by different people especially with old characters like new ones are the way you own the rights it's a little bit more difficult but older characters like three musketeers and stuff they're remade by same different studios all different writers sometimes they come out in the same year so it's not an uncommon thing and back in those days it probably wasn't that weird because it wasn't such an established yeah i guess established brand so yeah so tell us about the what, what is it about yeah, so I guess at this point, it, like Columbia is in place, they're ready to make the film. So the plot itself, um, I was actually just flicking through uh, Niven's, uh, David Niven's, auto- uh, not autobiography, sorry, it's biography by Graham Lord. And, and he describes, Graham Lord describes the film as a frenetic, plotless shambles. And I think that probably sums it up pretty, pretty nicely. Basically, yeah. um, Sir James Bond, uh, played by David Niven, is visited by M. He's retired. He's visited by M and other heads of intelligence services to be tempted out of retirement to tackle Smirsh. They're attacked. M is killed and Bond's home is destroyed. Bond then returns M's remains to Scotland and is attacked by Smirsh again. They were all undercover in Scotland for some weird reason. Uh, Bond then becomes the head of MI6 and he enlists more 007s to help including Vesper Lind, and who then enlists at the card expert Evelyn Tremble to play cards against Le Chiffre. Bond's daughter, Mata Bond, she travels to Berlin to destroy Le Chiffre's art auction. Tremble and Vesper Lind go to Casino Royale to play Le Chiffre at cards, and Tremble wins, and Le Chiffre captures and tortures Tremble before being him himself being killed by Smirsh. Smirsh then kidnaps Mata, James Bond's daughter, in a flying saucer, and so James Bond, Money Penny, and Money Penny travel to Casino Royale to rescue her, and they find that Doctor Noah, 
played by Woody Allen, who is actually James Bond's nephew, Jimmy Bond. He's the mastermind behind it. I can't even believe I'm saying this. He swallows a nuclear tablet, and then that (laughs) then eventually blows up the casino and kills all seven of the James Bonds that have been introduced into this story. I mean, it's a mess. It's impossible to explain, isn't it? It's impossible. It's it's the ramblings of a mad person. Yeah, yeah. And and you've actually your explanation is probably spot on. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> there's no nothing else that you really need to talk about. No. Yeah. So in terms of the production, oh God, it's only it only gets more confusing now. So I'll start off with the production. They started shooting on the 11th of January 1966, and it was shot across a, a few studios: Pinewood, Shepperton, and then on location. And when we watched it, actually, I I, I noticed because. There was no gate on Downing Street, so they must have actually shot and had a look into it. And they shot outside Downing Street, wow. so that shot where they drive in. So nowadays you would have that recreated. They'd build a, a stage. Uh, they use Meerworth Castle in Kent. That's where the home of Sir James Bond. Uh, that's blown up at the beginning of the film. And spend quite a bit of it in Scotland. So that is actually shot in County Meath in Ireland so the budget are you going to cover the budget you can mention the budget no you, I'll, I'll, I'll move on to the directors <laughs> and and uh, that was correct directors plural five <laughs> there's five directors of this and um, so Feldman has handily given us a, the contribution minutes of the film so we can Work out the scenes that they've done and, and how much. So the five directors are Val Guest, Ken Hughes, John Houston, Joseph McGrath and Robert Parrish. And uh, John Houston did 38 minutes of the, the final cut of the film. Ken Hughes, 25, McGrath, 20, Parrish, 20 and Val Guest, 26. Val Guest was actually <laughs> given the unenviable task of trying to splice together the absolute nonsense <laughs> that that has um, been put together because so the directors um, worked in isolation right they directed their yeah. own segments yeah. without consulting yeah. with the others and so the stories didn't really yeah. intersect yeah so they they don't know what they're what each other are doing and then and then it's just thrust upon val guest there you go make sense of that so yeah it's it's it is all over the place val guest did uh, a lot of sort of picking it up as well sort of reshooting stuff to try and make sense of it all uh the woody allen scenes are val guest as well uh ken hughes did the berlin scenes john houston did the james james bond's house and scenes at the scottish castle and then you've got the casino scenes split across two directors i mean it's absolutely Mm. crazy yeah but i i i looked into this and it's not it it wasn't an uncommon thing i think it was an italian style i think in in italian cinema they actually that was a way of doing it but italian cinema was a lot more artistic i think it wasn't so story driven i mean that might i might be completely wrong there but that's from my knowledge of italian movies but i think um i can't remember if uh, fellini was in some way involved i don't think he did any major work on it but he was he he was involved in sort of like a consultant basis, but I think there's an, an Italian style towards it, which makes the fact that there were so many directors actually not that weird. Interesting. Yeah. But but you would you would expect them to sort of know what each other are doing. 
in that situation, yes. right? Yeah, I think it's that's, that's in a story-driven film. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where the the bit. I'm okay with like different directors doing it if they each know what's yeah. going on, or or if they're not stylistically, or if they're not narratively linked. You can have a portmanteau film where the different uh, yeah. sections are yeah. different stories, but with this, yeah. They try and pull it all together. I know one thing that st- sticks out when you read about it is Charles Feldman said that he wanted to make a producer's film. And when you think about his history as a talent agent and a manager, he basically just wanted to give all of his all of his chums and all the people, the most famous yeah. people he was working with, a chance to work on this film. And yeah, that's... But the other reason was that it cost so much money. He said, if I was to make this film it, chronologically with the same person it would take so long and cost so much money so it'd be quicker and cheaper to get a load of people doing it at the same time right. move the actors around to the different sets right. so they're not wasting their time and i mean the, the cost of the film was 12 million which was a lot of money at that time so if, you, if that was even more expensive from um i mean it's like it's like a business decision that's not very wise <laughs> uh, john john just uh just to finish on uh the director john houston said um in an interview he said he it was broached to me as a lark, and I said, I'll do it if you let me write my segment of the picture and shoot it my way. So there's just they're just letting people yeah. sort of do what they want. Well, it's, it's an ideal scenario for any like creator, isn't it? You go on a film and you get paid... A, I mean, they paid a lot of money to people on this film, and you go, yeah, I'll do it, but I want to do it my way, and my then way. somebody else gets involved, mm. and they go, well, I want to do it my way. Like, okay, no arguments between directors, but nonsense comes off the back of it. Yeah. Why don't you talk us through who's in it, Wheatley? Well, I'd, I'd absolutely love to. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the cast of Casino Royale is pure, pure madness. There's so many people involved in it. And it's not just the normal cast. There's supporting cast and cameos and all sorts of stuff. But the main, the main cast in it are, I mean, it's kind of a who's who of the big actors at the time, which kind of shows you why it costs so much money. But David Niven, obviously, he was uh, originally Ian Fleming's choice to play Bond in... Uh, in um, Doctor No, or the first Bond film that they were going, that they would make, Peter Sellers, obviously, as Evelyn Tremble or James Bond, who I think is probably the most interesting part of this film in terms of actors. His story, which I'll go on to a bit later, is absolutely phenomenal. There's a load of people that were big at the time, which is, haven't really stood the test of time in terms of we don't really know a lot about them now. Dahlia Lavi, Woody Allen, of course, whose whose his story is very interesting as well with the with the film as well. Barbara Boucher, who played Miss Moneypenny. Uh, Terence Cooper as Coop. Deborah Kerr plays Agent Mimi, in the, uh, mainly in the Scottish parts of the, the film. Orson Welles, who I think is brilliant in it. I think Orson Welles is... I'd just love to have seen more of Orson Welles at that age of his... It, he didn't do many films when he was that age. Mm. But He was very much in parody mode, villain, wasn't he? Yeah, but if he'd have done a Bond villain at that age, he would have been brilliant. He was such a... You could see on set how good he was. And you could see why... Peter Sellers would be scared of him because he was so he just controlled that scene he's only in one scene and it's it's, I mean there's not many good scenes in the film but that's him in that scene is actually quite good and as well as that there's a supporting cast Bernard Cribbins is in it with a very strange role where he comes in and does a bit of fighting he's a Carlton Towers a British Foreign Office official uh, Ronnie Corbett's in it, which you, I know you were quite excited about when you saw it. <laughs> Absolutely, excellent. Love uh, yeah, that's a bit surprising. Stood in the background, you think is that Ronnie Ronnie Corbett? But um, yeah, loads of other people that I've not heard of who were big stars at the time. Uh, they also had quite a lot of uncredited cast members who were people who just they they weren't 
really cameos in the sense that they wanted them in the film. They just apparently this film was so kind of there was so much money flying around. It was so much about you know the the the, the producers and just getting friends in and parties and all this stuff that um, people just turn up and they just go join a bit in the film. There, Peter O'Toole, who he was the main character in What's New Pussycat, and um, uh, Sterling Moss was in it as well. So I don't know who he was. Who he was in it. Uh, apparently, stunt director Richard Talmadge employed Geraldine Chaplin, who is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin, to appear in the film. And then also Angelica Houston. It was her first experience in the film industry, and she played the um, Deborah Kerr's hands. <laughs> <laughs> that's another interesting one and a good one for you Butler Dave Prowse is in it did you know that? yeah Frankenstein I spotted him Dave straight away yeah but originally he was meant to be playing uh, Winnie the Pooh yeah I read this it's yeah crazy. apparently <laughs> I mean I, 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 when researching this it just sounds like such nonsense you don't know what to believe but so they could write anything and you'd be like yeah 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 that's fine they were going to film on the moon yeah yeah probably <laughs> um uh, and then uh, last one here, John, John Le, I can't, John Le Masura, yeah, Masurier, Dad's Army. How do you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, Dad's Army. He's quite early on in the film, so yeah. So there's it's a big cast, and a lot of those probably cost a lot of money. And some of them, and I'll talk about a bit later on, but some of them, even the, like the the tiniest parts, got a lot of money for coming in. So yeah, very strange process. I would not want to have been the the finance team on this film. Well, Peter O'Toole did it for a case of champagne, apparently. I he did, that. yeah, but I bet it was good champagne. Yeah, it would be fantastic champagne. Yeah. <laughs> Terence Cooper, interestingly, who plays Bond in the middle, well, he's one of the recruits Bonds. He was originally cast to play Bond uh, in the original version mm. when it was going to be a straight version of it. And he's quite good. He's quite convincing as Bond, I think, but he's not in it hardly at all. Yeah. Which one? Which one is he? The he's the, the one that does the, the like training the scene with the Bond yeah. girls, and they're all like in their uh, bikinis. So he's the, the one that he's, looks he's like really Bond. The one that, yeah, he's really yeah. the one that plays the proper Bond in the film, isn't he? He's the only one that actually yeah. he's like a spy, but gets nothing to do. Well, he's useless. John he's Paul Bel- at the end, doesn't he? And you're like, where have you been? John Paul Belmondo as well. The um, the French actor. He he crops up at the end, doesn't he? Oh yeah, the the last scene has a lot of cameos in it and yeah. little roles where people just turned up, and we'll talk about that last, last scene. Oh, what are we going to talk about the last scene? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Derek Nimmo just spirals into madness. Derek Nimmo, I was a big fan of seeing him in this because um, oh yeah, uh, yeah, I always like to see him in things. But yeah, I guess one of the other things about Casino Royale actually is, is how many um, actual people from the Canon Bond films crop up in in the movie as well. Just one thing as well, just from Niven's uh, book as well. So David Niven Jr. said that uh, his father, David Niven, on this film was like a fox in a hen house surrounded by pretty girls, <laughs> which I thought was a great quote. <laughs> so you can just imagine Niven Sr. just like absolutely loving being in this film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so this film has, um, you, if you read about this film, this is one of the facts that comes up a lot. It has the greatest number of actors in a Bond film that have either ever appeared in another of the Bond films. So you've got Ursula Andress, who we know uh, played Vesper Lind, and she's from Doctor No. You've got the actor Vladel Shabal, who was Kronstein in From Russia With Love. Uh, Bert Kwok is in this film. He is in Goldfinger and You Only Live Twice also. Jean Rowland, she's in You Only Live Twice and this. Angela Scular, who played Ruby Bartlett in um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, one of my favourite Bond girls. She, she appears in this in the Scottish scenes. Yes, yeah. 
Jack Gwillem, um, he was in Thunderball and also plays an army officer in this. Caroline Munro, who obviously was Naomi in The Spy Who Loved Me, she is one of Dr. Noah's guards. Milton Reed, he is Sandor in The Spy Who Loved Me. Sandor. Yeah, Sandor, one of your favourite. Um, also, John Hollis, who is Blofeld in For Your Eyes Only, he is one of the Matterbonds uh, hall guards. You've got John Wells, who is Q's assistant in, in the Q scenes. He played Dennis Thatcher in For, Yours, for, for Your Eyes Only. And then you've also got Hal yes, yeah. Galili, who is um, a gang- is the gangster Jack Strap in Goldfinger. He's an, uh, an army officer at the auction. It's actually quite fun to sort of, when you're watching it, it you know, to p- pick them out. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite well, you've nice got to have something to do, to do during it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, probably one of the strongest things of the film is the, the soundtrack, the music, right? If you were to pick something out that has a redeeming feature. So Feldman brought on Burt Bacharach, who had done the score for What's New Pussycat, which we've cross-referenced quite a lot. And he spent two years making the um, making the soundtrack for this and also performed with uh, Herb Alpert, who would actually go on to play on the theme for Never Say Never Again. So there's another Bond connection. And it features a song, The Look of Love, which is played over that scene uh, where Tremble, through the fish tank scene, basically. Is yeah. The, yeah. Which was nominated for an Academy Award. Wow. So, and, and and to be honest, it's it's one of those that's famous of its own accord, isn't it? Like it's it a, lost it's out. A... I've got a fact about this one that I knew already. It lost out to um, the Doctor Doolittle song, which has obviously got Bond links. We talk about that in a, a, a previous Bond series, but that that was the soundtrack right. that won the the award that year. Little fact there for you. So it also featured in and and this is the reference. This is what's sort of it's influenced Austin Powers. It's played in the first Austin Powers film. And then there's a a slight snippet of Born Free. Yes. Which, yes. Butler, you actually noticed when we were watching it. Yeah, John Barry. You, you, yeah, and the, the reason, that's because John Barry won the Academy Award for that and he beat Bacharach's Alfie. Huh. So that's what that was, a little sort of nod to that mm. rivalry. Um, another interesting thing about that soundtrack is it's it's like a cult favorite with with audiophiles because of how clear and clean the recording was how interesting it was it was used as a benchmark to test stereos and and like sound equipment yeah so it it, you know by the late 80s those records were going for several hundred dollars because of how good it was yeah i thought that was quite interesting yeah it's it's a interest it is a good soundtrack i remember when back in the days where you bought cds and I used to buy James Bond compilations. They always had the Casino Ralph theme tune on it. Mm. And at the time, I never knew where it was from. I knew all the songs on it, apart from this one song. I was like, where's, it, where's this song from? It's like uh, that and Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But um, yeah. it's, it's, it's a good song. It's stupid, but it's a nice song and it, it works quite well. So now we get to the interesting bit and pretty much the majority of the film is is probably covered in this one section, which is the problems that <laughs> they had on the set. And I mean, I could probably talk about this for the next three hours, but uh, I'll I'll paraphrase some of it and give you the highlights because most of the troubles tend to focus around a couple of key people. And as you can probably guess, Peter Sellers is one of them. 
Now, it's, but it's worth noting here that Peter Sellers, because uh, I, I did a bit of reading around Peter Sellers, and I think, I, as you know, he's, he's he's a man who struggled with depression and insecurities throughout his life. He was um, he he often claimed even claimed that he had no identity outside of the role that he played. So the, this role was quite an interesting one for him. He he was playing a character that he had a lot of problems with based on you know what kind of comedy actor he was and he played his characters and he he really wasn't happy on set there were so many problems that i i i've got to i'll go through some of them now but there were there were far more from what i've seen he he, he apparently would just often cause interruptions by just leaving the set for days on ta- at a time stopping filming stopping whatever process was meant to be going on just got really difficult. Roger Lewis, who worked on the film, says that he uh, Sellers kept rewriting and improvising scenes himself to make them play more seriously because he wanted to play the role like Bond. He wanted to play it. He knew that it, that a lot of the Bond films were, were based on the North by Northwest model, so he wanted to play it like Cary Grant, which wasn't wasn't the script. He was meant to be a comedy character. He was meant to be a parody of Bond, but he played it seriously, and you can see that in the film. He's it's almost quite jarring to move from the scenes to him because you can see he's trying to play Bond. And in some of them, I think he's quite, he, he just seems quite good in it if he was playing it seriously. But yeah, it was a, it was an awkward position to be in for, for, for the team because he just wasn't doing, he wasn't playing the film. He was playing a different film. Uh, and, and you can see that because the only parts of the, the film close to the book are the ones featuring Sellers and Orson Welles. That's really like quite spot on because he was playing that like the book he was playing that that character there's a scene one an interesting i'll go through some stories now uh, that one scene where there's a oh, i can't remember the name of the uh, jacqueline bisset was in a scene with peter sellers and she goes into the room wearing a nightgown um and is holding a, a bottle of champagne and peter sellers suddenly turns turns on her and fires a gun directly into her face as she comes into the room and it it wasn't it was a real gun but it had blanks in it and he shot it right in her face. Um, oh, my God. And it left, it left her face coated in burning gunpowder. And it was bleeding from shards torn from her skin. And she said, um, first I thought I'd actually been shot. And then when I realised it had been a blank, I thought I'd been blinded. My face looked like a shower spout of pinpricks leaking blood. I was panicked whenever I had a scene with Peter Sellers. To get shot in your first scene with a big star, that is a nightmare. So there's that's a pretty big sign that he was a pretty dodgy man to work with on this on this set another story is where he punched uh, director joseph mcgrath you might have heard of this one who was a friend of his mcgrath was complaining about his behavior on set he was having a go at him saying that you, you you're not behaving properly on set and there was a stuntman on the set called jerry crampton who was the best man at one of peter's weddings he ran over and grabbed them both by the scruff of the neck and said i, I don't know which one of you to hit i love you both um <laughs> and joseph mcgrath Afterwards, he met Peter Cook um, and he, he had a chat with him about it. And um, Peter Cook said, I hear you and Sellers had a punch up. You're a great fan of Peter's. You love his work. McGrath said, I still do, regardless of the punch up. Yeah, replied Cook. I think this is the first instance ever of the fan hitting the <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. Nice one, Peter Cook. Line. And then probably the most, I've left this one to the end because it's the most interesting one. Sellers... He was really excited about working with Orson Welles originally because obviously Orson Welles, legend at the time, absolute legend, probably, you know, quite a bit older than than Sellers. He'd seen all his films, so it was a big deal for him. But it 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 was just destroyed the film, like the whole the whole process of it because they it just got to the point where they wouldn't work together. They just hated each other. By the end of Peter Sellers' 
position in the film, they actually got rid of him. And that's why he just leaves the film with the strangest exit in some weird LSD torture scene. Just disappears, just gone. But the reason why that came about, and there's there's lots of accounts of why Peter Sellers hated him so much, but it's probably plays partly to the fact that Peter Sellers was so insecure about his position and Olsen Wells is this legend who was so confident and just took control of these scenes. So there was one point where apparently Sellers was really big on the royal family. It was like a big deal for him to be recognised by the royal family as being successful. And Princess Margaret came to the set one day because Peter had invited her to come along. But when she showed up, she just walked straight past him because she saw Orson Welles, who she, who she knew previously from performing Othello on stage. And um, just to, just over to Orson Welles said, Orson, I haven't seen you for days. And Sellers was just humiliated from that point and just hated him because he'd just taken away any like power that he had on the set. And from that point on, they just just couldn't work together and and in filming of the casino scene was apparently filmed completely separately they were filmed against like um stand-ins so mm. they were never in the same 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 room at the same time so they're not actually speaking to you in, the, in, in that scene it's two completely different scenes yeah absolutely absolute madness and i i, I can't remember where i read it but um there was other scenes other points where i think one of them would just fly away to a different country when there, there was like big scenes and stuff going on just so they didn't have to get anywhere close to each other and and the directors would go well if you go over there now then we can't film your scenes with Orson and he'd be like exactly that's what I want <laughs> so that, that that's Peter Sellers I mean we could probably do a whole podcast on Peter Sellers mm. Woody Allen's another interesting one who obviously had found this, the whole part of the process very very difficult and there, there was lots of issues with him not wanting to be classed as a writer on it um, because he didn't want it, the film against his his name. Um, but I've got quite a long quote, but it's quote, but it's quite interesting from from Woody Allen about it. And it's it's in a letter to Richard O'Brien, who was a publicist for his manager Jack Rollins and Charles Jaff Jaffe. Casino is a madhouse. I am still waiting to shoot and will begin finally tomorrow. I think the film stinks, as does my role. There is no involvement or story or importance to any of it. It is silly like an old Milton Berle sketch as opposed to a fine Nichols and May sketch. There is no seriousness or maturity of approach. It is unfunny burlesque. And also, David Niven said, Casino Royale is either going to be a classic bit of fun or the biggest f*** since the flood. I think perhaps the latter. <laughs> Which is quite a nice scene. I mean, he's, he still enjoyed himself on set by the sounds of it. And then, yeah, we, we've already touched on it before about the, the cameos and all that stuff. And we talked about Peter O'Toole getting a box of champagne. Deborah Kerr, who's not in it a great deal, she's in the first bit, she was apparently, um, she got paid $50,000 for two days' work on the film. But yeah, the whole the whole thing was just apparently just famous people turning off left, right and centre and just, do you want to get involved? Here's some money for that. Do you want to get involved? So it was just madness on set. And this leads on to the kind of costs of it. Uh, Time magazine called it Little Cleopatra, which is a reference to obviously Cleopatra, the film a few years like massively earlier. Massively over budget, yeah. Was one of the most over budget films uh, at the time. It was probably the most over budget film ever made. And that was, and it became like a staple. People just called any film that was over budget like a mini Cleopatra. And this was, they said this was mini Cleopatra, and it was, it was uh, just getting to the point of ridiculousness. Yeah, I mean, the, the budget, like we said, it was originally budgeted for 4.5 to $5 million by. Um, by Columbia and by the end it reached 12 million dollars 
and to put that into context, um, Thunderball um, had had a budget of eleven million dollars, and You Only Live Twice, the film that was in production at the time, it had a budget of nine point five million dollars, and obviously that had you know Ken Adams' amazing volcano set. So it had gone absolutely out of control, and just something to, to just something. This doesn't apropos of nothing, but um, during filming, it was the time of the World Cup in England. And David Niven was taking all the cast and crew to see the football matches because there was just it was just dragging on and on and on, and so they, a lot of them just went to see the football matches while it was happening. So um, <laughs> I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. But yeah, after four weeks of filming, uh, this is according to Niven's book, um, they they would been filming for four weeks and they still had no script for it. So. Uh, Columbia Pictures were really not happy with the cameos and they told Feldman to stop with all the cameos. It was just costing them too much money. And uh, not only was it costing them money, it was the shoot was dragging on. It was taking longer and longer. And so what had happened was Columbia and United Artists had had a mutual agreement to release their films um, in different time slots so they wouldn't cannibalise each other's box office which is something that still happens nowadays right the studios put their flags mm. in the sand for those dates really early on but yeah so uh, Casino Royale had a Christmas 1966 release date planned and then that had to be pushed back to Easter Casino Royale was going to open at Christmas You Only Live Twice was going to open in the summer there's going to be six months between the film but then and, and Feldman actually wanted to hold the film when it was delayed till Christmas 1967. So it would put that six months between them again. But Columbia were just desperate to start recouping their money because of the budget going over that they said, no, it has to go out at Easter. Um, and that's when the that that was when the film was released, just two months before you only live twice. Mm. So obviously Columbia start heavily pushing this and, and just all the promo department working overtime and they're doing Playboy spreads. With uh, like the girls of Casino Royale, which had a piece written by Woody Allen, huge posters across movie theaters, audio clips apparently playing in the foyers of these theaters as well, um, and the tagline "Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond." That's on the poster as well, and it's you know <laughs> a, a sly dig at the, the 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 incoming "You Only Live Twice" film as well. Obviously, "You Only Live Twice," Eon then retaliate with really pushing the Sean Connery is James Bond, there's only one James Bond, you know, all down that route and the whole, you know, because they've, they've built this James Bond so they can use all the official uh, yeah. the feeling of Bond. They've got that in the, to their advantage. Feldman in New York, he did a press party on the roof of Broadway's screen building and he unveiled, unveiled a 62 by 100 sign of a classic tattooed woman uh, and he served hot dogs and champagne. So that's that the budget... iconic image, isn't it, with the guns? It's, yes. a, it's a great well, according image. According to Orson Welles, that's why the film was successful, because of that <laughs> campaign. Yes. Twiggy was there, who was huge at the time. You know. She recorded some trailers for the film, I think. Really? I didn't... Yeah. What, like presenting? Yeah, she recorded some stuff to camera for, I think, right. either for TV or... Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, the Cannes Film Festival, they wanted to get in on the act... But um, obviously, with it being we overrun, that that didn't get to happen. Uh, you you would imagine it'd be more of the same, you know, hot dog, champagne, just wild sort of parties yeah. going on. And then, whether it's true or not, but apparently the film was still being cut and prepared on the night of its premiere in Leicester Square. Wouldn't so, surprise so me. That's what almost... I was saying. You could say anything about this film. You could say, you could say it was being edited whilst it was showing. 
Um, so yeah, April thirteenth, nineteen sixty-seven was released in the UK, and then twenty-eighth of April in in the US had its premiere there. So another part of the promotion of this happened in in Boston, where a radio station WRKO they sponsored a screening at a theatre called the Sac Savoy. And they put it out and they said that they were going to give free admission and snacks for anyone who turned up uh, in spy gear, you know, in a trench coat, a classic spy trench coat. And then people began queuing up hours before. And um, so the theatre decided to start the screening two hours early and the crowd did not take that news very well. And it descended into absolute chaos. There was riots and the New York Times actually reported that there was between 8,000 and 15,000 people wow. <laughs> that turned up for this. So obviously you've got the, the James Bond name that is attracting people, regardless of you know who's making it. Yeah. And it, it required every Boston police officer to calm the crowd. Like the whole... Uh, <laughs> this stupid film. <laughs> this stupid film, yes. People got hurt. Reporters got hurt. Arrests were made. There were fires in the theatre itself. Has anything good come out of this film? <laughs> the, the and then they put the fire out and it, it soaked the audience that were watching the film. <laughs> it's just oh my god! It sounds um, like a part of the film. Yeah, but but the the guy who ran the the cinema, he didn't turn the film. He just he left it playing because he didn't want anything else to happen. <laughs> he was just terrified. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's great publicity because. <laughs> You know, everyone's going to be talking about it. And well, that's the only thing that's going to help this film out. Yeah. Astonishing. So how, did, how did it do at the box office? Well, glad you said that because not bad. But, I mean, it was it was a, it, not great, but it did make back a fair bit of money. It was the 13th highest grossing film in North America in 1967 and it made $22.7 million. So that's about I don't know, £180 million pounds these days. And it cost £12 million to make. So... Made its money back by quite a bit. It wasn't a flop mm. by any stretch of the imagination. Worldwide total was forty-one point seven million, which is fairly handsome set of money from that twelve million. And yeah, it set a three-day gross for Columbia Pictures of two point one million pounds in the opening weekend in the United States and Canada. So wow. it's you know all this stuff we're talking about it being very strange, odd film did do pretty well at the cinema for for what it was. And I read that um, Peter Sellers had um, negotiated uh, 3% of the profits. He was the only and, one who managed to get that deal. Yeah. And his estate was still making money from it until 2011. Yeah, that's yeah. mad. I mean, isn't I'm, it? I'm not sure he made a lot of money after a certain year, but. Um, <laughs> then, but I it has I'm, had re releases recently, hasn't it? It had the DVD and the Blu ray releases. So Yeah, but I'm not, I don't know anyone who's buying it. Oh, we did. <laughs> well, yeah, but only because we have to do a podcast on it. <laughs> they wouldn't have bought it otherwise. Um, but, it's a shame that it's, it's probably because you can't get it as obviously it doesn't come as part of the the normal Bond collections. A lot of Bond fans will never see it because it doesn't really fit into that. You know, you, you don't get it with them. And I certainly would never have bought it if I didn't. I wasn't doing this. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to know how much it still makes. It's a bit of a cult classic, isn't it? It's probably still picking up a bit of cash. 
Well, some people really like it. I mean, the reviews at the time were were bad. I mean, on Rotten Tomatoes, they've got a list of all 26 released Bond films and it's the bottom, you know. So we've mm-hmm. done specials on A View to a Kill and Casino Royale 67. They're the two worst reviews Bond <laughs> films of all time. So we started high. And this is the lowest, 20, at 26, at 26% rotten it is. Yeah. Um, New York Times said... Uh, it's the sort of reckless, disconnected nonsense that could be telescoped or stopped at any time, at any point. Roger Ebert, um, obviously the iconic film critic, mm. said, called it the definitive example of what can happen when everybody working on a film goes simultaneously berserk. <laughs> he said it's the mo- possibly the most indulgent film ever made. In 2012, uh, Variety revisited all the Bond film and their critic Peter DeBruce said, even the worst Eon-backed Bond movie has the distinction of being better than Charles K. Feldman's Casino Royale. The result is a film of astounding sloppiness, an insult to the Bond name, which he thinks is most most likely deliberate, and a dark spot on the resumes of all involved. Surely unintentional. But interestingly... In in 2006, Empire, when it re-reviewed the um, re-release, gave it four out of five. They said uh, Kim Newman said this spoof of the Bond films is overpopulated, overstuffed, wildly inconsistent, episodic, and a total mess. But it's so inexpensively insane that it can't help but be entertaining. Hmm. So is that is that a fair assessment? I mean, I, I, I've got to I, say, I I think there's there there is parts of it that are enjoyable. I think, it, as I was saying earlier, it's not. An, like, if you know a lot of the films that came out around that time, they were they were all like that. They were it, like this, these kind of LSD fueled, sex based kind of romps were pretty standard fare. I mean, if you look at what's new, Pussycat, that's absolute nonsense. But it was one. It was a really popular film, and people still and that never got panned. People don't say it's rubbish now. People still remember it as being like a classic. But it's. Be, I think it's because this is Bond. And and yeah. people who are reviewing it like Bond. Nobody who doesn't know Bond is going to watch this film. People who watch Bond are going to look at it and go, "It's awful." But I think if you if it, it was nothing to do with Bond and we all sat down to watch it as an old film, you might go, oh, "This is ridiculous." It's quite funny in some ways, but it's definitely it's context, isn't it? And obviously, it's not a well-made film, but it's also probably not as bad as it sounds. If you don't, it is it handsome in places, though. It is really beautifully shot. I know that Nicholas mm. Rogue did some cinematography on it, and uh, that stuff with Matahari and, and her dancing oh, is, that's, is, yes, that's is amazing, really yeah. distinctively visual. So it, it just does seems look wasted, nice. doesn't it? All of it's that just, beautiful yeah. stuff could have been done used really well yeah. if you'd have given that budget and that cast to yeah. uh, Cubby and Saltzman. And David Niven as well as as Sir James Bond. I mean, that's just yeah. a great, great bit of casting. A great, but and I kind of like that stuff at the beginning of the film. Yeah. The stuff that re- I really like is Ronnie Corbett as Polo and Anna Quayle as as Frau Hoffner. They're just great. That middle section yeah. with those two in it is is very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very funny. And Peter Sellers, you know, he he obviously got fired from the film or what have you, but he is funny in places. He gets some good lines. Do, do, yeah. I, I think that, that it's most watchable when he's on screen, actually. Yeah. Hmm. He's, yeah. It's his film. It's his vehicle, really. Yeah. But um, I, th- I think it's interesting. Some of the characters, I think Ursula um, Andrus, I think she comes off very well in that film in comparison to how she comes off in Doctor No. I think she's mm. she seems like a good actress. She seems like she's in control of her scenes. And in Doctor No, she's obviously just not, she's just a bit of padding, really. She's not like, yeah. not really got a like a in-depth character but i think she's probably got one of the best scenes in this film and just and we get that... to hear her voice as well, well exactly yeah I, uh-huh. I had to check that when i first started listening thinking is this her but 
yeah, there's definitely some standout characters in it and some standout elements to it. But yeah, it's just annoying that it just just got it's, messed up in such a way. Yeah, it's a squandering of talent. I think that's the, the that's the best Absolutely. way of putting it. Mm. Um, yeah. But it's overblown. It's too many cooks. It's incoherent. Yeah. And but if you, you think know, about it, at that time, the the first three Bond films have been made. They were doing pretty well. By Goldfinger, it was pretty much a sure deal. But it was still just three films, and this could have been amazing. And the people could have just gone, "This is better than the other ones." And you've you've suddenly got yourself, you know, quids in because you you can make other other films and and base it on this. But it was a gamble, wasn't it? And he, it just a gamble that went too far. Yeah, I'd love to see what seen them make a a straight Bond film. How that yeah, I'd love to see those scripts from the Ben Hecht and, and Joseph Heller days and maybe see, you know, like a, someone make a graphic novel out of those and see what they look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, would, would love to see that. I guess, like, the, the the legacy of the film lives on in Austin Powers. I guess that's... that's well, Austin almost Powers seems yeah, like much dope. entirely based on that. Entirely based on this rather than the James Bond mm. films. I never Absolutely. really saw the connection between the two things before, but... Um, yeah. Well, if like you look you at saying, stuff like In Like Flint, In Like Flint is quite similar to the style of Casino Royale. In, right. in the, the the kind of sixties, the sixty format, and a lot of other ones. And Austin Powers isn't just based on Bond; it's based on yeah. that whole sixty spy genre. I was, yeah. I was talking to Brent earlier about um, Matt Helm series, yes, with, which is very similar as well. It's just all about women. It's all about music. Very light on actual spy storylines, which you know which that's what Austin Powers is playing off, isn't it? That the actual spy stuff is nonsense. It's all just the stuff around it. Yeah. Interestingly, the, most of the cast don't really talk about the film anymore. They like sort of have distanced themselves from it quite mm. a lot. And uh, one of the lasting effects of the film actually was that it, it really had a detrimental effect on Feldman because he, he it, it mm. really affected his health, just how badly it went. And he died yeah. not long after it was released. So um, yeah, it's yeah. Um, has a has a sad legacy really with it. Um, yeah. But on a plus side, I think that Bond, the Bond series, has kind of just benefited from the fact that these films do exist because every time someone makes one of these films never say never again casino royale any of these tv episodes it just just reinforces you watch it and you go god they just know what they're doing with bond these other ones can't get it right they can't do it and it's it's actually probably its legacy is helping the whole bond series out and showing how good it is yeah i mean this is the thing you you watch this and whatever you think of a View to a Kill, Die Another Day, Diamonds Are Forever. Whatever you think of those, yeah. they're well made. They're watchable. Yeah. The plot, you know, goes along. It makes sense. Yeah. They're doing an incredible job. So like you say, yeah, films like this just strengthen that. Yeah. And also, this this is a trend film. This this It's a 60s style trend film. Bond was never a 60s style trend. It was... Uh, it had 60s elements to it but it was almost timeless wasn't it the the storyline and the way that they did it it wasn't like a lot of things going on this the, the 60s and we talk a bit about how bond actually kind of ignores the 60s he hates the beatles he hates everything else going mm. on he's saying oh, i don't want to get involved in that i want to stick to what my guns and that's what the broccolis did they created a character that stuck to its guns and didn't you know turn into something just because it Bent was popular. the whims of time yeah yeah although some of the one the bad bond films are ones that have slightly done that like die another day like tomorrow never dies where they've they've been affected by the, the themes of the time yeah and it loses yeah. a bit of it 
So I guess from one extreme to the other, the next episode will be about the other Casino Royale. Oh, thank goodness. Thank God. <laughs> Finally, some, it's like Gordon Ramsay mean, isn't it? Finally, some good effing food. Um, <laughs> so we're going to do a good Bond film next. But um, yeah, I guess uh, pl- thank you so much for listening to this. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. We really enjoyed researching this one. And mm. um, if people want to get in touch with us, how can they do it? Uh, on all the socials, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, it's at James Bond A to Z. And on email at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. But yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, please leave us a review and a rating wherever you are listening. That really helps. And if you can share it with your friends and family as well and, and, and your enemies, and um, that would be most appreciated. Thank and you. And if so- you haven't watched Casino Royale, the original one, please watch it and let us know what you think. <laughs> yes. And we'll apologise in advance. Yes. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, James Bond will return in the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thanks. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.